Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 is where we're going to start off with. Matthew 3, 11 and 12. I baptize you with water, John the Baptist said. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We're going to take a little time tonight to deal with these two verses because there's a lot of misconception when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. There's a lot of teachings about those things that are incorrect. We're going to spend some time tonight dealing with, hopefully, a scriptural correct teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire. Um, we're going to deal with the baptism, being baptized in the Holy Spirit first. All right. The word baptized or is in the Greek baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O with a little, I don't even know what you call it over the O. Baptizo is, uh, is the word and it means to dunk or to put into. It's a picture. The Greek word is a picture of dyeing something. You'd have a vat of liquid which has the dye in it and you take a piece of cloth and you would put it into that dye into that liquid and when it came out it looked the color of whatever it was that's the picture of the word baptized it's to put into but when it comes out there's an identification with what it was put into do you understand what i'm saying it was put into something but there's an identification with what it was put into and so you've been baptized jesus uh, john the baptist said that jesus will baptize you with the holy spirit so I'm going to ask you this question tonight. If we are put into the Holy Spirit, doesn't the Bible say that the Holy Spirit's put into us? So which is it? Is the Holy Spirit put in us or are we put into the Holy Spirit? Both is correct. All right, go to John chapter 14 and let's see how Jesus puts it. John chapter 14. Look at verses 15 through 20. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another. By the way, that word another in the Greek is another of the same kind, just like me. Another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be where? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus says, I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you're in me and I'm in you. Now, again, didn't Jesus say that he was going to ask the father and the father was going to send another helper to be with us forever? And that helper is the spirit of truth. He's with you, but he's going to be in you. But then Jesus says, in that day, you're going to realize I'm in you. So which is it? Exactly, it's both. Folks, let me tell you, stop trying to divide the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You'll hurt yourself trying. You can't do it. That's why too many people get caught up in all this. Have you been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit? Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? There was this big movement that said you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Well, no, 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 they have to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because we keep trying to separate God. You can't. But what I also want you to see is this. And I'm going to illustrate it to you this way. Some of you have seen this illustration. Some of you probably haven't. And I really want to take the time to have you see it and make your own and then put it on your fridge. What you need to do first is get an envelope about this size or whatever size you want and put your name on it. And then take a three by five card and put Jesus or the Holy Spirit on that one. The Bible says in that day, you're going to realize I'm in you. The Holy Spirit's put into us at the time of our salvation. The Holy Spirit is given to us and he indwells us. Jesus, as we just said, indwells us. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is inside of Jim Johnson. But Jesus here in John chapter 14, verse 20 says that not only is he going to be in us, we're going to be in him. So make another envelope a little bit bigger with Jesus on it and put that inside that envelope. But didn't Jesus also say in that day you realize that you're, I'm in you and you're in me and I'm what? 
in the Father. Get yourself a bigger envelope and put God the Father on it. And put that one in it. Where are you? You're baptized. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in you. The Holy Spirit's in you. You're in Jesus. You're in the Holy Spirit. You're in the Father. Folks, we are in Christ if we're saved. This isn't just some mental exercise. This is a reality that most Christians don't understand. I don't have time tonight to break it down into more detail. I'm just going to share with you a couple of scriptures to help you begin this journey of really understanding what it means to be in Christ and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let me just quickly say before I share with you those scriptures that there are unfortunately people out there that are teaching that you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, but then you need another baptism. And let me just tell you, the Bible teaches that that is not the case. That's a lie of the enemy. Now, the one thing is the enemy wants to fool you into not realizing who you are in Christ. But once you realize you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, he then says, well, you didn't get all of Jesus. But listen closely to some scriptures that I'm going to quote to you. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. When you've been saved and you've been given Jesus Christ and you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that's, you've been put into Christ and he's been put into you, you've been put into him, you have already received everything you need for life and godliness. Don't let anybody tell you you need another baptism for power. Everything you need is already given to you. The Bible also says in Ephesians chapter 4, that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Oh, be careful also those who say you need another baptism because the Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 that in Christ the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ. Folks, when you were saved, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to indwell you and to seal you. You were put into Jesus. You have been put into him. You are now identified with him. Don't let the enemy fool you into thinking you need more. Now it's a matter of us learning how to live with what we've already been given. There's a big difference between being baptized in the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Because the Bible says we can grieve the Holy Spirit even though I'm baptized in the Spirit. I can quench the Spirit even though I'm baptized in the Spirit. But first and foremost, avoid anyone that tries to tell you you need a second baptism. They've taken scriptures and twisted them, and that's not what the Bible teaches at all. I wish I had time to explain to you where they're coming from and show, them, show you scripturally how that's not true scripturally, but I don't have time. That would derail us from where we need to go. But John the Baptist said, the one that's coming after me is mightier than me. You guys are all pretty impressed with me as John the Baptist. Let me just tell you, the guy, I'm baptizing you with water. The guy that's coming after me is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. I'm putting you in the water. <laughs> the guy that's coming after me is going to put you in the Holy Spirit. And he's going to put the Holy Spirit in you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, look at verses 12 and 13. For just as the body is one and has many members or parts, and all the parts of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit." Do you see it? You were baptized into who? Into one body. Who is that one body? It's Jesus. You were put into Christ. You're into the body of Christ, which is made up of many believers. But there's just one body. And we've all been put into him as you trusted him as your Savior. Go to Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 4. Again, this makes me want to go down another whole road that we don't have time to deal with. But in Romans 6, 1 through 4, look at what Paul says. He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, remember how I told you when you were baptized, you were identified with Christ. When you're put into whatever it was, you come out identified with it. 
When you were put into Christ, everything, and that's going to become more clear tonight, everything that Christ accomplished is now yours. Was Jesus tempted when he was on this earth? Is he tempted now? Why? According to the scriptures. What happened before he was raised? He died. The Bible says he died. And now he's been raised and he's got a new body. The flesh is gone. He's not tempted anymore because of his death. Guess what? If you've been put into Christ and you learn how to daily say no to your flesh and yes to the spirit within you, because of your identification with Christ, Paul goes on later here in Romans chapter 6 and says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey its desires. You actually, because of your identification with Christ, have the ability, because of Jesus' death to temptation and death to sin, have the ability now to live a life without sin. Please don't hear me say that if you're walking in Christ, you'll be sinless the rest of your life. But you will sin less as you learn to walk in the Spirit. You, do you realize that most Christians today spend most of their Christian life dealing with sin? Let me put it to you this way. Most Christians spend most of their life dealing with sin, trying to stop sinning. They spend most of their life trying to get into a room they're already in. But we don't understand what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the enemy doesn't want us to know what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's why he fools us into saying, well, you need another baptism. You haven't gotten all. No, you've already gotten everything you need. Now you need to learn how to live it out and walk in the Spirit and say no to the flesh on a daily basis and yes to the Spirit. Were you going to ask a question? Okay. Go for it. Mike, you said most Christians spend their life trying to avoid sin. Well, isn't that because of guilt and we know that what we have and you're trying to, you don't want to disappoint God. Right, but at the same time. We're going to disappoint God in the same aspect. We don't want to disappoint God. Right. Uh, uh, What's your definition? When I'm talking about deal, trying to deal with sin, they try to stop sinning, but in their own strength, in their own energy. When the Bible says, because of our relationship with Christ, actually, we will sin less and we'll have victory over sin as we just focus on Jesus. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Everybody go to Hebrews chapter 12. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Let me give you an example. I'm going to give you all a quiz and we'll see where you're focused. Hebrews chapter 12, look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the men and women of faith that were just listed in Hebrews 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here, the Hebrew writer says, we're to lay aside every sin and everything that so easily entangles us, and we're to run the race with perseverance, looking to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who began it and the one who finished it. Where is your focus? Is your focus on laying aside the sin, or is your focus supposed to be on looking to Jesus? Looking to Jesus. Because as you look to Jesus, the sins will fall away. The Bible says in the book of James chapter 4, I say resist the devil and he will flee. Oh, I didn't quote it correctly. The verse actually says submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. You don't have to try to stop sinning. You need to learn how to focus on Jesus and put your eyes on him and acknowledge what you've already received because of Christ in you. Let me give you this other example. When Jesus walked on this earth, he was God and man, correct? When he walked on this earth, the humans saw him and they only saw a man. Even the disciples didn't fully understand that he was God. And so even when he, the Bible says when, they, when he, they were worried about the wind and the waves, and the Bible says he told the wind and the waves to be still, and the instantly they went still, the scripture says the disciples said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They, they just saw Jesus the man. They didn't understand that he was God. But there was a, chance, a time when he walked up to this man who had a legion of demons, 
And what did the demons see? Who did the demons see? They saw the deity. They saw God. They, they, yeah, they saw the physical Jesus, but they saw what was really going on. And they said, we know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Have you come to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? And the demons freaked out because they weren't afraid of physical Jesus. They saw God. If you have been baptized in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, in the Father, and he's in you and you're in him, do you not realize when we walk on this earth, we walk around like this? The demons don't see you and me. When those guys tried to cast the demons out in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, they said, uh, we know of Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? There was no connection with the father and the demons weren't afraid of those guys. And they sent them away naked and bleeding, which is still kind of a funny story to me. But at the same time, they were trying to do something in their own strength that they had no power to do. When we walk around, we have God in us. And if I focus on who I am in Christ and I turn to the father, submit myself to God. Guess what? We're derailed, but it's OK. It's worth it. Go to first John chapter two. No, it's okay. It's a great question. Go to 1 John chapter 2. I don't mind chasing a rabbit. If we can catch it, it tastes good, and it tastes awesome. Jim, just, even just on the third, um, well, I assume Hebrews 12, 3, but it says in the last, in the latter part, it says, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. Exactly. And when we focus on setting aside the sin, instead of looking to Jesus, we become discouraged because we try to stop sinning. Folks, you've already got the power to stop sinning within you. Focus on Jesus. And this is what these verses are going to talk about. In 1 John chapter, actually I said chapter 2, go to chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Go to chapter 5. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one doesn't touch him. Folks, I don't have time to go into this because we got a lot more we need to cover in Matthew here. But let me just tell you, when you were baptized in Jesus, you are identified with Jesus, and everything that Jesus did, he'll do for you. Everything that he's accomplished is now yours you need to understand, I am in Christ. Paul says, I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live now, I live by faith in the one who died for me. Daily, we got to stop trying to fight Satan and focus on Jesus and watch. The struggle with sin will become less and less. Oh, the temptations will still come, but the victories will become greater You'll have more and more victories over sin, and you're still going to be tempted, but you're going to find yourself winning a whole lot more than losing, and you're going to give glory to God because you know it wasn't that you did anything, but it was him, because he is the one who's going to do that. Doesn't the Bible say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, may your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless till the coming of the Lord Jesus? The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. How many of us are going to try to stand before God and say, but God, I tried to live for you. I tried to do my best. And he says, you don't understand. I never asked you to tr do it. I asked you to trust me to do it. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before himself spotless and with great joy, I quoted to you from the book of Jude. Folks, all throughout the scriptures, the Bible has said it's his work, not ours. So if you are in Christ, stop trying to stop sinning and focus on Jesus and watch how you have victory because of your identification with Jesus Christ. All right. Now, John also said that Jesus would baptize people with fire. Now, there's been much confusion as to what being baptized in fire means, but I think the context here and the scriptures tonight are going to help us understand it a little bit more. The context here in John, Matthew chapter 3 appears that John is using the word fire to refer to judgment. Look closely again at chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, 
whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So in the context here, is fire a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing in the context. Stick with me here. I'm going to do a fuller teaching on baptism of fire. But for right now, in this context, being put into the fire, remember, if you're being baptized with fire, you're being put into the fire. Isn't that what it means? If you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that means you're put into the Holy Spirit. If you're going to be baptized in fire, you're going to be put into the fire. And doesn't the Bible teach us that there'll be those who are put into the fire? Is that a good thing? Not according to Revelation chapter 19. Well, actually, before we go to Revelation 19, I'll give you a scripture verse the Tuesday night group didn't get. Go to Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33, look at verse 14. That's why you come here. Isaiah 33, look at verse 14. It says, The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Doesn't the Bible say our God is a consuming fire? By the way, the godless are the ones who are trembling. The sinners are afraid. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, we know that the false prophet and the Antichrist are going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. Go to Revelation chapter 20, look at verses 11 through 15. In Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So let's be honest. Let's let the scripture speak for itself. To be baptized in fire could refer to being thrown into the lake of fire, correct? And it does. As you're going to see, being baptized with fire has one effect on the lost person and another effect on the saved. But there's more to just this judgment for the lost in this passage where John says he's going to baptize you with fire. Remember, we studied last time we were together that John the Baptist was the partial fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, where the Bible said that one was going to come. Who was the one that was going to come? Elijah. Remember Malachi talked about how Elijah is going to come before the day of the Lord? Go back to Malachi chapter 3. We also saw last week that almost, well, actually every passage uh, in uh, the Gospels referred to the Isaiah prophecy about the one who prepares the way for the Lord. But go to Malachi chapter 3 and look at verses 1 through 5. Knowing that this is referring to John the Baptist is going to bring some more insight to what he just said in Matthew chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's that, by the way? That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years, and then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift 
a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So here we see that the prophecy says that this one is going to come before the Lord, and then the Lord's going to show up, and he's going to come like a refiner's fire. And some of them are going to be purified by the fire. Others are going to be judged by the fire. Do you not realize, and I'll show you this from Scripture, that there is such a thing as a controlled burn? Y'all ever heard that term, a controlled burn? That's when you actually use a fire to accomplish a good purpose. If you are in Christ, you're going to go through the fire. We don't have to worry about the fire of judgment of hell. That's been taken care of. But if our God is a consuming fire, part of the purpose of fire is purification. We use fire to purify gold. We use fire to purify silver. And he's going to come. And the prophecy is talking about the end of the tribulation period where Israel is going to be refined and they're going to offer offerings of righteousness. But the others who don't fear him, that fire is going to do what to them? It's going to consume them. Do you understand that the Bible also teaches not only that the lost will be thrown into the fire and consumed by the fire, but the Bible, I'm going to show you more scriptures in a second. The Bible also teaches that God uses fire in the believer's life for the purposes of purification. Actually, by the way, you remember Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came to indwell them? What appeared over each of their heads? Fire. Pillars of fire. Because God is a holy, holy God. The tabernacle, when he came to indwell it in Numbers chapter 15, the pillar of fire was above it. And folks, listen closely. If that's who God is, if he's that holy and he's that pure and he's a fire as well, for those of us who are in Christ, we're going to have to deal with the fire if we've been put into Christ. You just can't live as you want. I met a young man today. I actually invited him to come golfing with me so I could share the gospel with him and find out where he is because he's a friend of mine and lives in my neighborhood and I asked him what he believed about Jesus, and he said, oh, I believe in Jesus. He said, but it's kind of hard in 2018 to obey the teachings of Jesus, especially when you're a young person. But I believe in him. But I don't know if I'm just going to just follow all of his teachings now. I could have easily talked to him about the fire. But what God had me share with him was this. If you call Jesus your Lord, he gets to determine the course of your life, not you. He said, I understand. I'm not sure this guy really is a believer, personal. I don't think it's possible to say, hey, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to live my life the way. Didn't we already say that if you're truly born again, the Spirit won't let that happen? You can't be comfortable doing that. Yeah, the demons believe. Here's what I want you to understand. If you are put into the Holy Spirit, are you going to escape the fire? Be careful, don't answer quickly. If you're going to be put into the Holy, if you've been put into the Holy Spirit and God is a consuming fire, are you going to escape the fire? No, you're not. You're going to be baptized with fire as well. Oh, it won't consume you because you're in Christ. It's a controlled burn. And you, it has a purpose for purification. He's going to be trying to make you holy. He's predestined to conform you into his image. There's judgment that's going to happen in our lives. Folks, the Bible teaches that for Christians, there's judgment on a daily basis. David says, Lord, search my heart. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path of righteousness. By the way, there has to be judgment in order for God to show you right or wrong. There's correction on a daily basis as we learn to con the conviction of the Holy Spirit and responding appropriately. We're being touched by the fire, but the purification is for our best. Jesus said, if you are in me and you're producing fruit, I'm going to prune you. By the way, does the rose bush love the pruning? No. But it has a purpose, and it's for good. The Bible calls it the discipline of the Lord. Go real quick to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When we finish this life, all our works are going to be tested by the fire. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verses 6 through 10.
Paul says, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we're of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I know all of us say amen to that. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Believers are going to experience the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment that I showed you in Revelation 20, that's for all the lost. That's for all the people that have died and were in death in Hades. They're going to be judged because of their not being in the book, Lamb's Book of Life. And they're all cast in the lake of fire. But for us, don't think for a second that I'm saved. I won't have to deal with judgment. No, the Holy Spirit's going to still deal with judgment. That's who he is. And so we're going to experience the judgment seat of Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 gave us a little more understanding about that. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. Paul says, according to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. Isn't that what we just saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? It'll be, each one's work will be made manifest for the day, capital D there, will disclose it, the judgment seat of Christ, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives the fire, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Again, for the believer, you're going to experience the baptism of fire. It's a baptism for purification. Remember how the prophecy in Malachi said, the one that's going to come before the Lord, and then the Lord's going to show up, and he's going to refine, and he's going to be a, like a refiner's fire. We're all baptized in the fire in one way or another. If you're in Jesus and you're baptized in the fire, like I said, it's a controlled burn, and it's for the purposes of purification. If you are not in Jesus and not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you're not protected from the fire, and the fire will consume you. Go to Matthew chapter 3. Let's go to verses 13 through 17. Matthew chapter 3, look at verses 13 through 17. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you, you have to come to me. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, there's enough here to finish the rest of the night, and I'm going to have to move fast for us even to get it all in, but I want to so that we'll stay on the same track with the Tuesday night group. But all four Gospels record Jesus' baptism. If you do a study of the Gospels to find out all the aspects of Jesus' life, there's only three things that I found that all four Gospels talk about. One is his crucifixion, which is understandable that all four Gospels talk about his crucifixion. All four Gospels don't talk about his birth. All four Gospels don't talk about all the things that Jesus did. All four Gospels only talk about three things. One is his crucifixion, the other is the feeding of the 5,000, which is a very interesting thing. The feeding of 5,000 is in all four Gospels. And Jesus' baptism is in all four Gospels. So if all four Gospels, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speak about Jesus' baptism, there must be something very, very important there, don't you think? Just like his crucifixion is very important for understand, and I think the feeding of the 5,000 is very important. By the way, that's a commercial. That's what I'm preaching on in the series that I'm going to do with the two-part series at First Merritt Island over the next two Sundays. It's tied to the feeding of the 5,000 and why it's that important. But for your own sake, write down Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. You can go and read that, Mark 1, 9 through 11. That's Mark's account of Jesus' baptism. Write down Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. That's Luke's account of the baptism. But I want to take you to John's. It'll be important for us later on. Go to John's account in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Now, John references the baptism of Jesus in a different way than the other Gospels do, but he still references it. 
In John chapter 1, look at verses 29 through 34. The next day, he, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. That's important. I came that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness This is what John said. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now it's interesting. We see from Matthew's account that John at least knew there was something different about Jesus. Because he was like, I don't think... You need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. But he also says that it wasn't until he see the, saw the Spirit come down in the form of a dove that it confirmed that that's the one. It is the Son of God. I think personally it's because John was a near relative of Jesus, and he probably had seen his life and the sinlessness of it and probably thought, dude, you need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you, not me baptizing you. But it was when the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove that it confirmed to John that this is the one, the Scripture says. Now, keep that in mind. John tried to hinder Jesus from being baptized, but not for the same reason he stopped the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember, we saw last week that he stopped the Pharisees and Sadducees because he didn't believe their baptism was sincere. They wanted to see evidence of repentance. But Jesus didn't need to prove repentance. He had no need of repentance since he was sinless. But Jesus' answer as to why he needs to be baptized by John is to fulfill all righteousness. Don't miss that. He said, it's necessary that you baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus fully identified with mankind so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. As you're about to see, and I'll take you through here in Hebrews and a couple other passages, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness so that he could fully, fully, fully identify with mankind in every way. In Hebrews chapter 2, I'm not going to start in verse 9, but I'm going to jump to verse um, 16. Hebrews chapter, you you could start in verse 9 and go back and look at the importance of the fact that he had to be suffer like us and everything. But verse uh, 16 says, For surely it is not angels that he helps... But he helps the offspring of Abraham, and therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right, so here the scripture says that he had to be made like us in every way. Did we need baptism for repentance? Yes, we do. We need baptism for repentance. In other words, we need to acknowledge, identify with the fact that we're sinners. That's Remember, the baptism was an identification. You need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Jesus, even though he didn't sin, fulfilled all righteousness by even being baptized for sin, even when he didn't sin. Why? Well, one day he was going to become sin. And he fulfilled all righteousness by identifying with us in every single way way you know he knew he was going to become sin so he didn't say i don't need to be baptized i'm good no he fulfilled all righteousness because he knew he was going to become sin and he was going to identify with us in every single way now jesus also fulfilled all righteousness by fully observing god's law remember god the law of god was given by moses and he fulfilled it all Perfectly. Let me give you a couple quick examples. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16. Look at verses 16 and 17. The law says here in Deuteronomy, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose at the feast of unleavened bread at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths. 
They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he's able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he's given you. So here the law said three times a year, every male had to appear before God at the place that he chose. By the way, where was the place that he chose? Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem. And those three feasts, they had to appear. Go to John chapter 5. Look at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Didn't Jesus spend most of his time in, the, in Galilee? Didn't do, wasn't most of his ministry done in the, around the Sea of Galilee in that area there? Well, how come he went to Jerusalem? Because the law said that three times a year, every male had to appear in Jerusalem at those feasts. It was another feast. He appeared. Have you ever noticed that most of the times we ever see Jesus in Jerusalem is just at the feasts? He didn't hang out in Jerusalem when it wasn't feast time. He hung out in other places, just like the prophecy said that he would. But when it was time for a feast, he appeared in Jerusalem because the law said that he had to as a male. Let me give you one more example. Go to Exodus chapter 30. Look at verses 11 through 16. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel... Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meaning or the temple, that it may bring to the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So the temple tax, which was for the upkeep of the temple, was something God instituted. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, look at verses 24 through 27. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? This is referring to the temple tax. He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take a toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However... Not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Remember, the tax was a half a shekel. You're going to find a shekel in there. That'll cover your tax and my tax. Go, go pay our tax. But what he said was this. He said, the people, the kings of the earth, when they take taxes, do they take taxes of their own kids? Or do they take taxes from the people that aren't their kids? Well, of course, the other people. Okay. So the sons are free. Who was the king of the temple? The father? God the father. Who's his son? Jesus. Did Jesus have to pay the temple tax? No. But he did. You're right, though, Mark, for this reason. He fulfilled all righteousness. And he said, so we won't give anybody any problem. Go pay the tax. He didn't have to be baptized, but he was. He didn't have to pay the temple tax. But he did. He fulfilled every detail of the law perfectly. Oh, by the way, he didn't keep man-made rules and traditions of the religious leaders. Uh, you write this down, look at it Mark, later on. Mark 7, verses 1 through 8. There were a lot of things that the Pharisees added to the law and made law and made traditions. And they're, they're, in Mark 7, verses 1 through 8, look at it later on, you'll see that the Pharisees come and say, how come your disciples don't follow the tradition of the elders and wash their hands before they eat? Because they used to wash their hands. They were kind of like my wife when it comes to that uh, antibacterial stuff. Man, if she touches anything, she's scrubbing on it. Well, they, if they went into the, uh, into the Gentile courts and did this market, they would wash their head. But it was a law that they made that everybody had to do a certain ceremonial type of washing before they did anything. Well, the disciples didn't do it, and Jesus didn't do it. And Jesus actually said, you guys are actually uh, making your traditions of men more important than the law of God. You're ignoring the law of God and following your traditions of men. So 
He didn't follow man-made rules. Remember how the Pharisees were all upset that he was eating on the Sabbath? They were taking the grain, and in their mind, he was working because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But all he did was him and the disciples take some grain, do this, blow the chaff away, and eat the grain. Oh, you just, you just harvested? You just threshed? <laughs> he didn't follow man's rule, but he kept the law of God perfectly. Now, the Bible says that when Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him visibly in the form of a dove. Here's my question for you. Did Jesus already have the Holy Spirit, or is that when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus? He already had it. He, see, I say this for a reason. You know there are people out there that teach that Jesus was just a man who received the Holy Spirit at his baptism and was empowered by the Holy Spirit throughout his life, and then at his death, remember when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? The spirit left him, and then he died. There are teachers out there that teach that Jesus was just a man that was empowered by the spirit. He wasn't God. Listen closely. The Bible teaches without question. Write these down later on. You can look at it yourself. Matthew chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. That's Matthew 1, 19 through 23. And Luke 1, 34 through 35. When, remember when the Holy Spirit, I uh, saw the angel came to speak to Mary about the birth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, God himself is going to come overshadow you. And the one to be born, the one to be put inside of you is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible is very, very clear that the Bible teaches that Jesus was God from the beginning. When the Holy Spirit came down on his baptism in the form of a dove, we'll deal with a second, in a few seconds why, but when he came down in the form of a dove, it wasn't that that's when he received the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he was God full of the Holy Spirit from the beginning. Now also keep in mind that John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 says this, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Was he a man that was empowered by the Spirit, or was he God who took on flesh? By the way, not all the answers are yes. He was God who took on flesh. He had always been God. Watch out for the false teachers who tell you that's when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. By the way, doesn't the Bible also tell us in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 and 15, through 15, that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb? Isn't that interesting how we'll believe that John the Baptist will have the Holy Spirit in him from his mother's womb, but Jesus can't have the Spirit till he's 30? There's false teachers out there, folks, and you've got to know what the Scripture says. You've got to know what the Scripture says. He's always been God. So why then does the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus at his baptism when he'd already received or had the Holy Spirit because he was God. Ah, it was very good. It wasn't, it was to, to identify that he was the one. Not just for John the Baptist. Remember what we just read? John says, I didn't even fully understand who he was until I saw the Spirit come down on him because the one who sent me to baptize said, the one you see the Spirit coming down on, this is the one. Folks, don't miss this. We're going to spend the rest of our time tonight dealing with this. The, the Trinity showed up right there. Jesus, who is the Son, is there at his baptism. The Holy Spirit comes visibly in the form of a dove onto him. And the Father boomed his voice and said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The baptism is in all four Gospels, and it's important for this reason, because it was at this point that God audibly, visibly confirmed, This is the one that I've been talking about all along. Go to... Uh, Go to Psalm chapter 2. Jumping around in my notes here, but go to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm. Psalm. Psalm chapter 2, verses 4, uh, verses 7 through 12. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. What a lot of people don't realize is when God the Father said, This is my son with whom I'm well pleased, he wasn't just speaking for no reason, he was quoting scripture. Isn't that interesting how important the word of God is to God? That when God speaks, he quotes his own self, him owns his own word. Folks, that means the word's kind of important to the Father, don't you think? 
He could have said whatever he wanted to say. He could have said something new and fresh because he's God and he can say what he wants. But when he said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, he was actually quoting scripture. In Psalm chapter 2, look at verses 7 through 12. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. A very familiar prophecy about the coming Messiah, and he's called the Son of God. So when, G when the Father said about Jesus, this is my Son, what was he saying? Remember Psalm 2, where he said, fear, you kings of the earth, fear the Lord, and obey his Son? The Father said, by the way, this is him. This is him right here. This is my son. Go to Isaiah 42. Because he was quoting also from Isaiah and the rest of what he said. Isaiah 42, look at verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Does that sound familiar? I think the father said it this way, with whom... I'm well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Again, another famous prophecy about the coming Messiah and it's the one in whom the Father's pleased. When God the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, he was taking these prophecies about the Messiah and saying, this is the one. Why did the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove? Why did the Father boom his voice? To identify to everyone that this is the one. Now, this is important for us because we've got a responsibility now because of the fact that we know this and we are in Christ by the way, this isn't the only time. I'll get to you the, what your responsibility is in just a second. Go to the Gospel of John. This isn't the only time that the Father spoke. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, take you to those two other passages. Go to John chapter 17. That's where we're going to close tonight. I'm not going to take you to those two other passages, but if you want to write them down, one is John chapter 12, verses 27 through 30. In John 12, 27 through 30, the scripture says that Jesus prayed that it was time for him to go to the cross. Father, it's time for glorify your son. And the father, the father boomed in his voice and said, I have glorified it and I'll glorify it again. The Bible says people said it sounded like it thundered. Other people thought an angel was speaking. And Jesus said, this voice wasn't for my benefit. This was for yours. Another time that he spoke is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. We'll get to that when we get to Matthew 17 in our study. But when Jesus is transfigured on that mountain, again, the cloud enveloped him and Moses and Elijah. And the father spoke again and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he added, he said, listen to him. So there are times that the father spoke. It was to identify and point to the fact that this is the one. Now go to John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is Jesus' prayer now in the garden right before the cross. When he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Don't miss that. That the world would know that God and Jesus, whom he has sent, I glorified you on earth by having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, 
and they have believed that you sent me. Anybody here want to identify that you believe that Jesus is the one the Father sent? Hopefully we all do. You have put all your eggs in that one basket, have you not? Because he is the only one. The Bible actually says that he is the only begotten of the Father. Whoever believes in his Son will have eternal life. The Bible also says in John chapter 14, verse 6, that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know what's sad? There are Christians, in quotes, I put that in quotes, people that claim to be Christians across this globe, and most of them are in the United States, who are saying this today. I believe Jesus is the way to the Father for me. But there may be other ways. Mm -mm. The Father went through all that he went through to identify that Jesus at his baptism was the one. This is the one that I sent. This is the one, and he's the only way to me. And we've come to know that he is the one that he sent. Now, jump over to chapter 20. I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 20. John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus now prays for us. Listen to what he prays for us. He says, I don't ask for these only, but I also for those who will believe in me through their me- through message, through their word, that's us, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. God wants us to be the, ev- the ones that he uses to evidence to the world that Jesus is the one. The glory you've given to me, I've given to them. That they may be one is even as you and as we are one, I and them and you and me. That's that baptism thing we were talking about. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I as, as you love me. Listen closely. We have he prayed that we would have that unity with the Father. Does he care about unity this way? Yes, the Bible talks about that as well. But here in John 17, he wasn't really talking as much about us having unity this way as much as we would have that connection with the Father that he had so that the world would understand that he's the one. In other words, Jesus said, the Father's confirmed that I'm his, that I'm the one. The Holy Spirit's confirming that I'm the one. Those of us have now been put into Christ. We're to be living our lives in that connection with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the baptism that we've received in such a way that the world would see that Jesus is the one that he sent. You understand what I'm saying? This was his prayer, that we would actually live out this baptism that we've been given, I and them and you and me. That we would actually live out this reality of Christ within us in such a way that people would say, man, Jesus has to be the one because of the evidence in our lives, do you not realize that as you and I walk on this earth, God wants to keep doing what he did through Jesus, that people would believe that Jesus is the one? Oh, by the way, is that your and my job to go make sure they know? No, that's the Holy Spirit's job. But if you would learn to live in him, the world will know that Jesus is real as God does his work through you. And the Bible says they'll ask you to give reason for the hope that lies within you within you. They don't want to see how come you're doing such a good job. They're going to notice something's going on. Oh, by the way, what did the father say? He said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I'm going to close with this and I want you to meditate on it between now and when we come back in August. Is he pleased with you? Now this is important because you heard that question and you didn't connect it with the first thing we talked about tonight. Very good. How come he's pleased with you, though, Glenn? Because you're in him. You've been identified. Glenn just kept you from having to stay here for another hour. He kept you. Listen, if you've been baptized in Christ, you are identified with Christ. And the Father sees who? Himself. We ask people now, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would God rate you today? Oh, I think I'm about a 7. I think. No, you're a 10 because you're in Christ. Oh, he's still working on you, and he's doing some things, but he sees the finished product. Listen, John 17, finished with 24, verses 24 to the end of the chapter. Listen to what Jesus prays. Well, actually, i got to read verse 23 again. I'm in them, and you're in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Does the Father want you to know that he's pleased with you and he loves you? Continually, every single day. So between now and then, go spend some time meditating on the fact that you're in Christ and that he loves you and he wants you to know. And when you really start to live that out, the world's going to see there's something different about you. And they're going to come to believe, some of them, are going to come to believe that Jesus is the one he sent. I love you. See you in August.